0: Hi everybody, and welcome to the cultural studies podcast. Hello. Thank you so much. I'm with my friend Rosalind Gill. Who I'm going to refer to as Ros from now on. Is that okay? Roz? Yeah, that's fine. And we are at Tom's Kitchen. Now, is this a regular haunt of yours, Ros? Whenever possible, especially. Yes, yeah, so we're at Tom's Kitchen, and wine's been bought and in fact are already being sipped. <laughs> um, Ross, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. It's always nice to see you, but it's especially exciting to... Claim you as one more victim, or <laughs> co-conspirator, or interlocutor, because long before I met you, which was about three years ago, yeah. I was a fan of your work, and I continue to be a fan of your work. So I'm hoping we can chat today a wee bit about what you've been up to. And I should say that it's May Day, and on my yes. way walking here from Moore I was walking just in front of if not at the head of the march, and I came to find you wearing a red tunic and now wearing red sunglasses. (laughs) In fact, it even looks, whatever redness you have in your hair is being picked up by the light.
1: I'm channelling red.
0: (laughs) You are. So this is a kind of workerist moment, isn't it? What does May Day mean for you historically? Does it mean anything in your life?
1: God, I didn't know we were going to get into this yeah. this quickly. No, it means a lot to me actually because I was brought up by Marxist parents. Oh, and I didn't know it. So, not
0: just a red tunic woman, oh, you're a red diaper baby, red as they say in the baby. US. baby,
1: absolutely. Yeah, oh, I didn't know so. That. I've always had, you know, May Day has always been very meaningful and I've always had this kind of long socialist tradition. So, yes, it does feel a bit strange to be working on on May Day, but how fitting to be with you
0: and having this conversation. It's great to be down at the Thames and Somerset House, which I suppose somewhere within it must contain our birth certificates. Does it still do that, or are no, they somewhere else? No, now? actually,
1: I think they're up your way in Clerkenwell. Are they? Yeah, oh, the so public records office has moved. Oh God! Yeah.
0: So Somerset House still ha- it has an ice skating rink some yes, of the year, and, and, a and court- it has the Courtauld Institute, but it doesn't have my birth certificate. Yet. No,
1: no, no, no. It has. It's very of King's.
0: <laughs> Oh, it's part of okay King's yeah. College, which is. Part of the University of London, yes. and where you are a professor yeah. right, nowadays. And you're a professor of, I think it said, social and cultural analysis. Exactly. Yes. Is that a title you chose? Yes. Is that, does that, so that describes actually how you want to see yourself a- well, academically.
1: As you know, these things are always very contingent, and sure. many, many other factors influence them. And one of the factors for me was that I was moving from a Whole entire trajectory in the social sciences into an arts and humanities faculty, who didn't want me to kind of self-identify as a social uh, so- socialist, well no, as a sociologist. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, because your PhD and cultural is in psychology, right? social psychology. Social
0: psychology. Yeah, so I, yeah. I started
1: off doing a, a degree in sociology and psychology, and then I did social psychology PhD, but it was largely focused on the media. Right. And I've been in kind of media studies, gender studies, sociology ever, ever since. Ever
0: since. But you still look at psychological questions, both affect, as in one of the interests of cultural studies, and more generally. I mean, I was just looking at a couple of pieces you. you did recently, thank you, on sexualization, yeah. uh, for example, where uh, you are, you're interested in what, in a sense, mainstream psychology has to say about these issues.
1: Not mainstream psychology, no, no, I've never been interested in mainstream psychology, but I am really interested in the psychological, and particularly in subjectivity, so Mm. I've sort of come out of an interest in ideology. That was the kind of key interest that animated me as a kind of young, you know, politically active, left-wing person growing up, Is, is that, you know, that fundamental question of how it is that people come to accept conditions that are not in their best interests to be, you know, natural and inevitable. So it's this sort of ideological question. I'm interested in how culture and ideology and power gets inside us and shapes the society.
0: Okay, okay. And so sexualization there's a sexualization debate which I mm. guess you've been part of. Yeah. Right? That is one manifestation of that, is that right to say?
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean the sexualization debate in my view it's got a little bit kind of reached a bit of a dead end because it's quite polarised along the lines that you might expect between the kind of libertarians and the sort of moral conservatives and I'm quite you know concerned about the way that it gets framed always in terms of morality and never in terms of kind of you know political and possibilities for what our sexuality could be
0: right Yeah. yeah And I, I guess one of the things I've, I've gleaned from reading your contributions on that is that you want to think about power issues, yeah. and and power issues not just in terms of, say, that kind of binary opposition, so not just in consumerist terms or in power-dressing terms, but yeah. across the whole spectrum of life.
1: Yeah. yeah. Is Absolutely. that fair to say? Oh, definitely, yes.
0: Yeah. And we've got to, this is quite complicated for us to navigate isn't it because we've got we've got to work out how we, we do a kind of 50-50 thing mm-hmm. but they've given us half two thing two bits of each type of food
1: so that was considerate
0: that's good isn't it yeah and one bit of bread, bread. We might need a bit more mopping up material later right. I'm not sure what do
1: you think that is
0: good question uh, we need the menu to answer it. To be honest. No. it's
1: not just look?
0: Are you worried that it's fishy? Well,
1: no, I don't think it will be. I think it's vegetarian. Maybe it looks like a coleslaw or something.
0: Maybe, but it doesn't Maybe. come from any garden I know.
1: What's
0: that? Why? <laughs> well, I don't know.
1: They haven't muddled stuff with from the farm.
0: <laughs> no, I, well, I don't. I think they wouldn't be featuring these vegetables quite so centrally, would they? Anyway, so if we can if we can start out with what you're working on now yeah. as opposed to this sexualization stuff which yeah. was a couple of years ago I guess. Yeah. What are you what are you kind of up to?
1: Well, I am still working on kind of the broad area of sexualization and I'm writing a book with two colleagues on mediated intimacy. Mm. Um, and we're looking at how most of the work on intimate relationships and kind of sex advice and stuff is focused on, you know, all the formal channels. And so we're looking at the media as perhaps the main channel of, of information and advice about sex mm-hmm. and relationships. So, um, yeah, we're doing that with Meg Barker and Laura Harvey.
0: Uh-huh. Are they um, at King's?
1: Laura's at King's um, half-time and she's also at Brunel. and Meg Buffer is at the
0: Open University. Yeah. yeah. Were you? Am I right thinking you were at the LSE before, or was it? Yeah, yeah. I
1: was. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
0: So that's an interesting one. Um, you've done quite a lot of collaborative work, which I guess is also a feature of the social sciences a bit more mm. than the humanities. Yeah. What's this? Is there an intellectual division of labour between the three of you on the project? The or?
1: three of us have decided that we're going to split it. Absolutely equally. So it's going to be a nine-chapter book, and we're doing three chapters each. But we're writing it collaboratively, so we'll each take responsibility for doing a draft of our three chapters, and then we'll circulate them and we'll work over the others' work. So it should be fantastic. They're both amazing women, and I'm really looking forward to working with them on this.
0: Great. Yeah. And what sorts of media are you looking at?
1: We're looking at everything. I mean, we've had an option we talked to the publishers about this we could have either gone by genre or medium so we could have kind of looked at online and then tv and then books and then yeah. magazines Yeah. but um, we were encouraged to do something that was kind of thematic and would cut across media so we're actually looking at issues like big issues like consent pleasure danger, safety, um, sexual entrepreneurship, and we're kind of looking at them across a range of different media and a range of different genres, and including, you know, a lot of kind of, let's say, alternative or, you know, kind of um, oppositional sexual communities, so we're looking, you know, not just at the mainstream. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I must admit, I'm not familiar with the term sexual entrepreneurship,
1: this, the way I understand it is that it's kind
0: of an idea. Very nice. Yeah. Extra bread or
1: anything?
0: I think extra bread might be a good idea. What do you think? Oh, okay. we had a question. Just this is not a complaint. It's just a question. Okay. What is what that? Are you, <laughs> <laughs> you are actually yes. <laughs> <laughs> but some people think that's an explosive device. When it... well, metaphorically, it might to be. It, so. Yeah, it, it is. It is a microphone. <laughs> but what is that? Uh, uh, um... Pressure.
1: Well, <laughs> not, uh, oh, oh is, is it
0: okay yeah. lucky okay, well, nice. I get the name of it sorry <laughs> no not
1: at
0: all thank you so thank much
1: you. yes
0: please I think it's okay
1: yeah.
0: um, so yes yeah, sexual entrepreneurship yeah
1: so I I use the term to mean um, something about the way that young women are being hailed or interpolated today that they have to be these that they have to be these kind of sexual entrepreneurs and they have to be feisty and empowered and confident and up for trying lots of things and very skilled and practiced so whereas sort of in the 1960s maybe um, arguably it was women's virginity and their sexual innocence that was the commodity that they offered that they brought to a new relationship today in this kind of post-feminist climate that's shifted and it's more about sexual skills and practice and sexual confidence
0: Knowingness and experience. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. So this isn't about the sex industries. No. This is about about mainstream. Yeah. And and is that something that you would associate with conventional heterosexuality, or do or does it play out as well in more uh, fluid categories or in different categories of sexuality? I think it's you
1: know much more dominant within traditional heterosexuality but I think it's, it's probably there across different sexual identities and practices
0: mm.
1: yeah it's such a kind of meme of this moment really, mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. expectation on young women whether they're bi or polyamorous or mm. lesbian or involved in you know, non-monogamous relationships whatever, that's still going to be kind of a feature of the cultural landscape that mm. informs the way they have to be
0: and the media helped to sell that notion very much. So. of, in a sense, no boundaries, but directing, or lots of experience, but directing people towards certain protocols that are expected of them. Yeah. Is that the story? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, you know, very, actually very many boundaries. Very, It's very, very tightly policed the kind of notion of sexual subjectivity that I think young women are kind of incited to... Be. You know, it's, it's still it's still shot through with the sexual double standards. You know, it's still kind of you have to be this, but you also have to be careful not to be too slutty or too experienced, not to kind of take your use of sex toys into too fesh- fetishistic domain. You know, it's quite tightly policed, I think, at least in the domains that we're looking at, which are things like shows like you know, the Sex Education show and sex inspectors there's a lot of kind of reality TV makeover shows that kind of promise to make over people's sex lives now
0: and so you're looking at britain mostly or exclusively
1: or? Um, well we're looking as widely as we can but predominantly in the anglo world and that's you know that's a limitation of our linguistic abilities that we are all you know first language english speakers We'll try and, you know, draw it as broadly as we can.
0: What is the role nowadays? Thank you, thank you very much, would you say. Anything else, Ross? No. What is the role nowadays, would you say, compared to, say, 30 or 40 years ago, of the advice column in a magazine? I'm thinking of things like Cosmopolitan, Mm. say, on sex, pleasure, responsibility, yeah. safety, pregnancy, yeah
1: yeah all these sorts of
0: issues.
1: It's very interesting how those magazine advice columns have proliferated actually and they've kind of, whereas it used to be the kind of generic problem page, now you'll find that magazines have very often kind of got their work advice page and their fashion advice page and their body advice and their sex advice and they've actually kind of, there's a kind of multiplication of these problem pages, because we're living in such a kind of self-help culture, I guess. Mm. But of course, there's not that much literature around on how people actually read them and what they take up, and you know, there's always, yeah. of course, the suggestion that they're mainly read for a laugh, that people pick over them, yeah. or they just pick them up casually, that they have no yeah. kind
0: of No substantive meaning. Or, yeah. I mean, the reason I ask is actually in some ways a personal one, in that mm-hmm. uh, I used to read women's magazines of that kind, yeah. forms of that time, when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. and every week in winter I had to go to a doctor's office for an injection, mm-hmm. and in the waiting room I would read these things that mm-hmm. were directed at women, both adult and teenage,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that was my schooling I would say Mm -hmm. (laughs) in these things so (laughs) some of these issues as they were described 40 years ago so I I just want I don't know how common that sort of thing is but I just wonder whether that the magazine the magazine still sells I noticed more magazine just sold just closed down right having been very popular but magazines are still going and there are different fora I guess for this kind of thing
1: you can uh, have them online. They still seem to be going strong. I mean, there's just such a lot of competing advice. There's just so many kind of online forums now and blogs and alternative spaces where people can seek out that that sort of
0: information. Yeah. And would you see... You mentioned post-feminism as being the dominant discourse, at least in terms of the conventional media when it comes to this yeah. sort of advice or counsel or engagement. You can have it all. Mm. You can be anything. Nothing's really in your way. But by the way, you must do the following things. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. And I'm really, really interested in the way that that ties in so well to the current neoliberal moment and this kind of individualization and everything and the idea that you are the author of your own biography, and there's no longer any constraints or structures or impediments. You make up your life. You are the kind of writer of your own destiny. Mm, mm. Yeah, Allegedly. <laughs>
0: Allegedly. And how do you how do you guys go about this? What's your means of doing the research?
1: Well, we're doing we're doing um, textual analysis. We're not actually doing any audience research for this work. Mm-hmm. But that isn't to say that we don't think audience research is important, we absolutely do and we completely recognise that these texts are polysemic and that they can be taken up in all kinds of different ways. But it's just that we're actually interested in looking at the texts. We think that's worth doing in and of its own right. Mm. So yeah. So, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about other bits of my work, because that's just one small bit as well, but I'm also doing a couple of other ongoing projects, Uh Um, one is to do with cultural labourers Mm -hmm. and inequality, and trying to think about how we theorise the pervasive inequalities that remain within all these fields. So that's one big thing. And then another big thing is around academics that I really want to look at next. Um, And I've been doing a bit of writing about, it's about academic laborers. Um, I know you might have some misgivings because again, it's kind of a very privileged group who um, aren't necessarily exploited in that brutal way that you've written so passionately about. But I still think that they're really, that we, we as an occupational group are really, really worth studying Mm. um, because we're indicative and emblematic of kind of modality of of the way that power operates now on on workers' subjectivities.
0: Sure. Uh, I, I absolutely agree. And I think increasingly universities, certainly in the United States, are populated by folks who are monumentally exploited because They don't have anything akin to ongoing security of employment. They're essentially waged labor, not salaried labor.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: They have few, if any, retirement benefits, Mm -hmm. health insurance arrangements, rights of any kind. So, yeah, I mean, I... <clears throat> I think that that is the way of the future, oh, apart from anything else. But mm. it, it's also interesting So sure. But why don't we talk about that and then talk about the cultural labour bit? Because okay. I'd be interested mm. to know mm. what turned you on to thinking about academics and how they operate and what their lives are Partly not just
1: my own experience, obviously, sure. yeah. being completely yeah. really stressed out doing insane kinds of hours, and not not doing these hours so that I could do some kind of, you know, privileged self-expression and write books and write articles, but actually doing those hours so I could get the marking done and see the students and do the mentoring and do the refereeing of other, other people's articles and so on. So just a sense of being besieged, literally besieged, by work all the time, this kind of unending nature of work that especially evident through email. And then also, in parallel to that, having done all this work on creative workers, and particularly web designers and DJs and people that worked in advertising, I just kept on hearing these stories of of insecurity and bulimic working patterns of working through the night to to finish something on a deadline, um, stress, and just kept on thinking. This is like my life. You know, why am I sort of displacing it all onto th- these groups? And why don't I start looking at kind of people that are doing academic work? Sure, sure. We've been so bad at looking at ourselves. We look at everyone else, but we don't turn the lens back on ourselves. And I
0: guess one of the things you're, you would find perhaps in common between the two groups, to the extent they're even distinct because yeah. there's such overlap, yeah, would be yeah. an email is a good. Synecdoche for this, the incapacity to switch off, Mm. the constant availability, and I think if your beat is culture and psychology and ideology, as you've been describing it, when are you not, in a sense, in the Mm. field? When are you not thinking about this? You know, if you're thinking about women and sexuality and advice and modes of being, then if you go out on a Saturday night and you see people, you're yeah. also thinking about your research, right? It's Presumably. So.
1: Absolutely, but I would want to say that I'm arguing something more than that in a way because of course that's the case and of course, you know, our students always say that to us, you know, You've ruined going to the cinema for me. I'll never be able to watch television again in the same way. All those sorts of things because, you know, once you have that different perspective, it's never going to leave you and you're always going to be thinking about it in a new way. But I actually want to say something more than that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of about not being able to go out on a Saturday night because you're...
0: Can get another glass I'm alright, thanks. I'm eating more and drinking more.
1: (laughs) I'm talking more.
0: You should be, that's the idea. (laughs) you should also drink and eat more. Um, Not even being able to go out on a Saturday night. Yeah, it's that kind of
1: thing that I'm more talking about.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've been rethinking in terms of my experience in the US, Ross, in the just few months that I've been here, Mm -hmm. is that academic freedom, which I used to poo-poo a lot there, I now have a lot more interest in because I see, at least in my own experience, and what I hear as I move around the country here and talk to people, mm-hmm. is the massive governmentalization and commodification of everyday academic life in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's astounding mm-hmm. the amount of surveillance of what you mm-hmm. do and critique the consumerist attitude that the university instantiates among students, yeah. saying that they have rights and you have none and they know everything. But mm-hmm. in fact, Freudian insights aside, they're there because they think they don't know everything. Mm-hmm. I'm just amazed at these pressures on the British academia. So that's very
1: different from your experience in the US? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: I I have experienced, it's over 20 years, only in two institutions. And they're both research one schools, but one a big private one, one a big public one. Most students still think that you are the gentry poor, in that you've made a decision to become an academic when you could have been in business and made a lot more money a lot more influence. And that's to be admired, and their parents have told them these people are admirable.
1: Uh, I don't think anyone's parents tell them that British academics are admirable. Not at all. There's such a lack of interest. Well, there's such a kind of anti-intellectualism and anti-university vibe in this country. And there's just a staggering lack of interest in academia. That's really, really disturbing, yeah.
0: So on the one hand, in the time you've been a professor, or I mean meant in a generic sense, an mm. academic. Yeah. Has there been more surveillance, more vigilance, yes,
1: sure.
0: um, more commodification, been, uh, or is yeah, it the so same across kind of your yes. years okay. working no. and no, studying? No,
1: no, It's, it's intensified exponentially. And, um, Roger Burrows, is a, a friend and colleague of mine, has written an amazing paper about this where he's, he's called it Living with the H Index. And basically he's calculated that Within UK academia we're subject to about 120 different measures, surveillance measures, so our national student survey result, our impact factor, number of citations, um, what feedback we get on our courses, etc, etc. Just so many different kind of scores and that they're kind of nested, they become these kind of nested, what he calls metric assemblages whereby we can be scored on these kind of composites. And then then they take on a sort of semi-autonomous life of their own and they can start doing things, you know, they can start firing people, closing down courses. They actually just literally take on a life of their own.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. And
1: that's dramatically increased oh, what yeah. whilst yeah. I've been in academia.
0: So that's a massive pressure on people, isn't it? Mm. Plus, of course, the fact that now students are borrowing money for the first time it's a new culture whereas it's an established one in the US yeah. disastrous it's now a trillion dollars of debt mm. by students in the US mm. but it's a new culture here so it's mm. going to generate new forms of conduct right mm. on their part
1: mm.
0: Mm. I'm thinking mm.
1: absolutely yeah
0: so. and yeah. as you w- work up that study area mm. What will be the sorts of things that you'll be looking at, do you think?
1: We, really, we want to look um, across institution types and across um, career stages. So we want to be...
0: Can I get a paper, that? Can you
1: looking at um, people that are you know, completely casualised on very very short um, maybe even hourly paid contracts we want to be looking at them all the way up to the tenured professors mm-hmm. we want to be looking at different institutions and different disciplines because it's probably very different in the sciences they have such a different model of working that I guess their experience of being an academic is completely different from mine so, so we want to get a sense of the diversity of practice but also the diversity of experience that's what we feel is the most ignored thing really is that there's been quite a lot of writing about the macro situation you know the kind of commodification the marketization all of that right but there hasn't really been any focus on the workers experiences
0: themselves one of the things that i've long believed and this goes back 20 years in three different continents Mm-hmm. Is that at least in my experience, there's also a gendered difference here, almost regardless of these other factors, though I suspect it intensifies with additional scrutiny and surveillance and vigilation <laughs> and so on, mm-hmm. which is that. And there may be an element of colluding in one's own oppression here too, mm-hmm. but that there is an additional expectation, often on women faculty, which they yeah. have to struggle against, and it may be partly their own expectations too, yeah. Yeah. to be, to do emotional labour, yeah. mm-hmm. in a way that may may apply to a lot of men, particularly if they're in mm-hmm. minorities. minority cultures that accrete a certain attention concern identification but that seems to me very very powerful and you know the notion Mm -hmm. of being a mother to Mm -hmm. people for example Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and being a role model Mm -hmm. I wonder about that when you talk about Mm -hmm. differentiating the experience of different groups
1: yeah yeah I think that's really 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 clear and Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think so often the kind of things that get pulled out are actually kind of why are only 15% of professors female or why are women paid, you know, systematically paid less than their male colleagues for the same work and so on, which are all absolutely crucial questions, but it's exploring the kind of experience of that and the why of it and how it gets perpetuated and that perpetuation exists, you know, organisationally but also psychically, as mm, you say.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's going to be, I think it's going to be a bit of a life's work, yeah. this project, actually. I'm going to be doing it with um, Christina Schaff, who I know you've already spoken to. Did she She's mention it? She's
0: been in the podcast. I know, I know. <laughs> she boldly entered. <laughs> she may have been the first Teuton to enter the podcast. Really? Although... Christiane Fuchs was there or thereabouts. They were really? kind of merging. But oh, yes, fantastic. she did tell me oh. she was going to be working with you. Yes, actually.
1: and Bridget Connor. The three of us are going to work with
0: Ah, Bridget, author yes. of the greatest MA thesis ever written.
1: Oh, that's so nice. Well, I'm going to tell Bridget she must listen to this podcast just for so she on is. It. She's, She's been honoured. She has? On brilliant. Absolutely.
0: absolutely. Now, yes. I, I say that not having read her doctorate, which I'm sure is also brilliant. Mm, it is. Um,
1: as will be her forthcoming book.
0: Yeah, she's wonderful. But yeah, mm-hmm. I know that's great that you're, um, what a great team.
1: got such fantastic colleagues. That's the best thing about King's colleagues.
0: Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. great. Really good. Mm. So that's exciting. And that's very early in its development mm. as a project, yeah?
1: I mean, I think people have the all ideas, it's just we haven't got the funding. And really, we just need funding to do some interviews.
0: So you're going to be doing quite a lot of qualitative yeah, work. Yeah, we
1: are. Yes.
0: Tell us what it's like doing this, being that, and across yeah. the disciplines.
1: Yes. Yeah, in the exactly. UK? In the UK. Yeah. Across the UK. Because it might be that there's something quite particular about London. Mm-hmm. London. It may be that people kind of are able to construct different kind of more livable lives, perhaps if they're in, in York or in Nottingham.
0: Or less, in that it may be more effort to get out and experience something different. Yeah, yeah. Are you going to look at senior administrators?
1: Um, We weren't going to, but I think that's quite a good idea. Yeah, why do you say that? Well,
0: I'm now so old, Ros. I no, have two the friends who are vice me. chancellors of British oh, universities. Really? <clears throat> one of them I've known for over forty years. One of them for over thirty.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And unlike the, most of the vice chancellors we know, Jeez. both those bits of bread are yours, my No, Lord. wait. Just have
1: this one, thanks.
0: But my girlish figure is deeply imperiled, so I'm hoping you will <laughs> deliver me from temptation. <laughs> Um, the
1: podcast is such a great medium for those of us whose girlish figures are in peril, to hey,
0: Toby? <laughs> you bet. And they're both brilliant academics, unlike most of the vice-chancellors I've ever met. Yeah, yeah.
1: And
0: I guess they have to be somewhat neoliberal or they yes. wouldn't get to those positions. But yeah. it has been it's very interesting when I chat to them from yeah. what they understand to be, you know, my nutty Marxist position... Yes. ..that... Their analysis is actually identical mm-hmm. to yours or mine about mm-hmm. gender. One of them's gay, one of them's a woman. Mm. Identical to the one we've just been discussing about gender and mm-hmm. pretty similar about the political economy of the thing. they just prepared to embrace it more. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just interested mm-hmm. in whether it might be whether they might be valuing talking to some of, not yeah. so much the architects of this madness, but yeah. the managers thereof. Yeah. Because they are professors too. You know what I mean?
1: So do you mean the Vice-Chancellors? Yeah. Or the people in professional services, like the senior kind of administrators, the kind of
0: committee
1: secretaries? Oh, I think any of
0: the group that says those bloody academics, mm-hmm. the sort of people who will be in the institution before, during and after our time there, who mm. see themselves often, not the Vice-Chancellors are more flighty yeah. like us, Yeah. But the senior administrators who were there throughout, mm. who actually see themselves as custodians in a kind of Edmund Burke sense, mm-hmm. for those not yet born, as it were, mm-hmm. in terms of the Edmund Burke ecological mm. arguments.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they're very interesting people often.
1: Yeah.
0: And their commitments and their views of academics are interesting, and they also would be interesting, if, they, if you can find any, that have yeah. been around long enough to have seen this intensified yeah. governmentalization of yeah. Anyway, yeah. That's, just just that's a suggestion. Really just yeah. a suggestion.
1: Definitely. Yes. Yeah.
0: Let's get on to the um, the cultural and creative industries mm-hmm. laborers mm-hmm. that you mentioned. I know you're running An event as part of the International Communication Association here in London in June, Mm -hmm. and you've published a lot about this. You've edited some special issues of at least one, maybe two, maybe more journals than Mm -hmm. I've read.
1: Yeah.
0: And you've done this in in different countries. But for those, the the podcast listenership is in 50 countries each week.
1: So for those
0: who may not be most people are not working with English as a first language yes who are listening. Yes. So for those who may not have access to those journals mm-hmm. and to some of your work I should say quite a lot of it's available free online. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Could you maybe add a break for some of those concerns, what you've been doing and so? Yeah
1: I guess I've been I started off my PhD research was about DJs, and um, that was my sort of first interest in cultural workers of a kind.
0: So you had a teenage crush on Tony Blackburn, is that what you're telling us?
1: Absolutely not. <laughs> but I did do research on Radio 1, and I did have some very difficult and interesting experiences that would will be sharing with the podcast today, <laughs> for legal reasons. <laughs> Yeah, so that was my first kind of foray into the world of kind of cultural work. Right. Um, but more recently, I've been working you know, sort of since the late nineties actually on kind of uh, looking at oh, <laughs> the, the police
0: helicopters of Central London. Actually, King's College Creative Industries chopper. <laughs> Was is... On message. On, on <laughs> message. My god. That's not your executive quick trip. That's your, no. you know, 50 members of the anti-terrorism, don't care about domestic violence squad.
1: Yes. With a gunship. Yes. Right.
0: Bloody hell. I live in LA and I don't often see podgers like that. Oh, I used to live in LA. I'm anyway. I
1: every, every summer weekend.
0: I can't as they say in some parts of this country because now it's as so queer as full. Oh. So
1: Yeah, so i nice radio DJs. I, yeah.
0: full disclosure I was a radio DJ for almost 5 you? years. I yeah. Didn't know this. And I didn't know actually you done your PhD <laughs> on them. So uh, now is it available online? I'm You're, sure it is. I'm going to go and I'm going to have no, to look at it. No, don't, don't, I'm going to have to look, look at it. Anyway, yeah. <laughs>
1: Anyway, so in the late 90s, I started oh, yeah, the, doing some work on yeah, the, the kind of emerging professions of the internet, basically. Because I've right. this. around, yeah. around you know, My favourite one is probably the top, just, uh, top, right. top sure?
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But like uh, with like
1: apple in it. And then uh, get some berries, so like
0: <laughs> The magic the word got her interested. Enough uh, of this crap about in the 90s I did promot. this and that. She heard <laughs> more booze coming in the way Um
1: yeah, so looking at web designers and digital animators and games people, all of that, those kinds of groups. And uh, basically just kind of looking at what their working conditions were like and how their professions were developing and all those kind of basic sociological questions. And then finding, you know, coming early into that kind of idea of this sort of myth about the work of of this sort of mythologized perfect kind of cultural sphere that they'd be working in and then the kind of realities of the experience, not living up to that and being
0: um,
1: shot through with sexism and racism and long working hours and very low pay and working for free and all those kinds of things and so since then I've really been doing kind of studies of similar kinds of groups focusing on those questions
0: Um, yeah So, I mean, I would see you as being in the frontier or vanguard of trying to demystify the magic of internet labour, actually, and cultural labour more generally,
1: Mm.
0: along with a few other people, our friend Andrew, Mm -hmm. Ross, Angela, Robbie... You know, just seeking to say, actually, it ain't all that fantastic yeah. if you sit down and listen. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: yeah. So I think it's incredibly yes. important work. At the same time, yeah. You know, here's the caveat. Yeah. What are the good bits, would you say, about compared to say the sorts of things that you were saying yeah. you, you were a red diaper baby, mm. the sorts of concerns that your parents might have had. about industrial labour or whatever their
1: concern was.
0: There's something different, isn't there?
1: Oh, there's totally something different. And I totally agree with you. You know, you've written with um, your colleague, I'm just trying to think of his name, Richard...
0: Maxwell. Richard
1: Maxwell, you and Richard fantastic piece for the book that I've got coming out with Mark Banks and Stephanie Taylor
0: Thank you for including us <laughs> and for improving it with the comments you gave us I should say by the way, talking out of school the editors were humane in their critiques rather than condemnatory and it, they, right, much to rise of, risible of laughter across the campus as it were but anyway yes mm-hmm
1: yeah no that i mean that piece that you wrote for us was a fantastic piece and i really really loved it and i loved its anger i loved its polemicism, um and i Completely took on board the point that you were making in a way, you know, just to kind of probably caricature your argument, but about like, these very privileged group of workers who, you know, are very bourgeois, who are kind of self exploiting, and actually elsewhere in the world, and even here, right here, there are people out you know with the full brute force of contemporary capitalism bearing down on them and their lives are much much different and i absolutely agree with that completely and i'm you know completely as a kind of long term socialist on the side of perspective. I'm reaching that out to my her hands here
0: on May Day. <laughs> uh, I can find no red.
1: Maybe is there. A... Oh, yes. It's because what? I'm wearing your red sunglasses because I borrowed
0: them. I've got the red piping on the yes. jacket. So I've got something. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> but, there's and there's an important uh, part. But here. there's a
1: but. Yeah. The but is yeah. that I still think, you know, whilst there's always those extreme cases and whilst they absolutely need theorising and they need activism around them and they need solidarity and they need movements for change, but still, there's still um, some work to be done on theorising how exploitation happens in these kind of high-end, above-the-line kinds of categories, and that's kind of my question, that's what I'm interested in so I sort of, there's a lot of people now I feel in this field turning away from exploitation Mm -hmm. turning away from that idea, or just talking about self-exploitation that's kind of Somehow, in its translations, moved on from the Foucauldian notion of governmentality and subjectification mm. to something more like victim blaming. You know what I mean? It's oh, they're just doing yes, it themselves. yes.
0: Because they went to university, their parents were middle class. They've chosen chosen to do this. They're silly and misguided, but they have options. So bugger them.
1: Exactly. Is and that, I actually yeah. think no, it's really worth thinking through what's happening yeah. and yeah. why people do willingly subject themselves to these kinds yeah. of conditions that make them ill you know that injure them that give them terrible illness bad backs rsi stress conditions all those relationship of things. health relationship health, health exactly yeah. yes all of that yeah. so that's kind of my question really what's yeah. going on with that
0: yeah sure so it's
1: not because i disagree with that your all critique right?
0: Uh, yes, do you need anything else? Like, another glass of that? Or? Why
1: not? Another And could Thank I have a you. cup of tea,
0: please? breakfast? Yeah, great. No, no more. No, just black, no sugar. It, I think it's what the Tories, when they came to power here three years ago, said was rebalancing. Um, to go up, brings you down, another to bring you up again. At
1: least it wasn't a double espresso.
0: Um, Yeah, no, I think that... And I think also, of course, in these allegedly post fordist post-industrial societies, de-industrialized economies, however misleading those terms may be, this isn't just about voluntarism or even a, a fraction of a class... Making choices. Mm. A lot of it is yeah. about structural change yeah. and the loss of security yeah. of employment. Right? Yeah. I yes, take that to absolutely. And as yeah. in yeah. every case I can think of, it tends to be women and minorities who mm-hmm. bear the brunt of this restructuring. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. Partly because
0: lifelong employment in the yeah. United States in a, an automobile manufacturer or a railway company has been quite good for African Americans. Lifelong employment in the state has been quite good for women. And here you can see a very gendered difference in the impact of the parts coming. From. But there's also a gender issue, especially in these web sweatshops, isn't that? Isn't that a big deal? Um, you know, particularly if women are, I mean, apart from anything else, often more connected or getting more responsible for family issues.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Whether of, you know, their own family or other families.
1: Yeah. And um,
0: there's the sort of mythic notion of the guy who has no other life.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Is that, is that myth in any sense materially real in your experience, in your research?
1: Um, uh, a mythology
0: which says women are here with yeah. family and men are.
1: No, because most it yeah. seems that literally the majority of women that are working in these kinds of fields also don't have, you know, any kind of family obligations or responsibilities. They're not caring for young children and they're not
0: actually able to. You
1: know, and there's so many, if you look at skill sets research, there's so many examples of women who kind of hide their pregnancies all the way through and then hide their pregnancy. Yeah. Go back to work the day after they've given birth um, because it's it's literally um, not something that they want to actually voice in that context because they're so afraid of that kind of disciplining moment where they will be seen as less committed. And lose out. And that's something I'm really, really interested in. Is kind of um, the kind of unspeakability, and it goes back to what we were talking about about post-feminism. Is sort of the unspeakability of inequalities in this moment, and the way that they all must be kind of individualised or dealt with personally. You must find your own personal solution. Um, but it's not kind of treated as a systemic, kind of structural issue.
0: I was thinking about this just the other day, I was reading about Karen Brady, mm-hmm. who, for people outside the UK, is some famous British business woman who runs... Is it West Ham United now which is a football team and used to run Birmingham City but her big claim in all of this is you know I didn't go to university I didn't need to I was back at work within a day of having my child I, sacked, I sold my husband as a footballer because he wasn't up to scratch uh, and now I want to I think her big desire this week is to run the sewers for the Conservative Party so that the sewers work better but, you know,
1: <laughs> but that's it's
0: so. astonishing in terms of these things, mm. you know, the boast about... And you see with the executives at the major internet firms a lot, the women, mm. oh, well, I was back within a day, mm. well, you know, this, mm. uh, yeah. astonishing notion. So so that applies across sort of gender. What, hap- what I'm interested in, and because you've been mm. doing this since the 90s, you would yeah. know this. What happens when these people are 40 and 45? Mm. You know, mm. As opposed to 25 and 30. You know, when mortgages and mm. your own health problems mm. and health problems of your parents or grandparents yeah. and yeah. Uh, an investment in the material economy in a conventional sense yeah. kicks in. Do they, does anything happen? Or are they all fired by them? they all
1: disappear I mean I haven't done any longitudinal research and that would be wonderful it would be so wonderful to be able to go back to people I interviewed in 1998 and see what they're doing now that would be incredible 15 years on but when you kind of go in and you do that snapshot thing of yeah. seeing who's there they're just not there I mean they are just disappearing in those older age groups particularly the women I mean it's much more marked amongst the women but, you know, across the board, these are very youthful, They're youthful yeah. occupations. Yeah. They're not sustainable, they don't kind of offer up sustainable modes of living. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. And it is just the... And do you think academia is, in any sense, becoming like that? Getting back to the connection yes. to your next
1: project? I do. Mm-hmm. I do, yeah.
0: We have a 12-year-old Dean. Hmm? <laughs> a
1: 12-year-old Dean?
0: Yeah, he's 12 years old.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, he's... hes No, he, we have a very able, very scholastically uh, successful and very humane Dean who is decades younger than I.
1: Really? <laughs> and how many things did he have to do before he became Dean and have been up the career
0: hierarchy. I've only had two glasses of wine, so I can't answer <laughs> that question as currently posed. I'll take the Fifth Amendment, even if it doesn't really apply outside Somerset House, which I've learned has dispensed with my court birth certificate. Hence, <laughs> 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 no longer of such significance in my own biography. <laughs> I mean, I guess some of this is about the triumph of youth, something that a lot of us have long wanted to see. Preferably
1: not when we were this age. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, I'm, we're waiting for another glass of wine for my friend and a cup of tea for me. We, we ordered not from you, from a lot gentlemen. Okay, sure. Thank you. So much.
1: Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's I like I've made that up, up. <laughs> we'll never know. Well, we will know when it goes to air to install of waiting listeners. Um, yes, there's something here. I'm thinking about, do you remember Anne Gray's research from the 90s into who controlled the video cassette yeah, recorder? Yeah, I love that research. It's fabulous, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Some buttons are pink, some buttons are blue. Yeah. And all of that in terms yes. of gender power. And... I guess today the interesting thing is if you look at that, and if you look back to the early days of radio, when it's Dag with his headphones on, and the big loud, not loudspeaker, but the big receiver, Mm. and mom and the kids just waiting for him to tell them what's happening. (laughs) But he's also the radio ham, the amateur, who can make things happen. (laughs) Nowadays we all know three-year-olds can fix our cell phones that we don't understand. So there is an interesting (laughs) shift in power relations there.
1: Yeah, You
0: know, the three-year-old daughter can tell the 45-year-old father how to, as it were, using the old trope, make the clockwork on the videocassette recording. (laughs) That is really interesting. I don't know what to make of it. I don't want to go too far with it. But there's something there. The problem is that it's in the context of a wider change in the international political economy that is clearly to the disadvantage of working people. Yeah. So, to finish off, we've got about, about ten minutes left, okay. would you mind if we went back, 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 back? Yes. I want to hear about Mum and Dad, oh, no. and I don't mean Mum and Dad psycho-sexually or anything like that. That's <laughs> a relief. But of course you can talk about that if you wish. <laughs> this is without censorship. I'm interested in growing up on the left. Could you tell us a wee bit about that, to where that came from, what that means for you? Is um, that OK to talk about
1: Yeah, I mean, I can say a bit... I don't want to... My mum... My dad's died... Oh, I'm um, sorry. ..in 2001. And my mum's still alive and very wonderful. And oh, great. I love her dearly, and I don't want to say anything that's exposing of her. Sure. But I guess my family... Um, we're from Manchester, we we are a kind of, we are a sort of historically a socialist family. My grandparents, my dad's parents, met in the, the Socialist Ramblers Association, that's how they met, and my grandmother...
0: Can you explain rambling to... Oh, rambling listeners? is like
1: walking, just walking or hiking or tramping on the hills and on the moors and going out and kind of just... Being in nature, but it has... And
0: public space. The idea of nature and publicness, yeah.
1: Yeah, and very much associated with demands to kind of nationalise the land and keep it all public and, you know, keep the footpaths open so that they can be used for the common good and not bought up by all these private property developers and corporations. Um, So, yeah, there's a kind of long socialist tradition, really, with rambling, and then they were part of this socialist rambling association and yeah that's my kind of grandparents heritage and it kind of goes through my whole family and my dad was a member of the of a kind of tiny minority left-wing party called the socialist party of great britain which is part of the world socialist movement um, that just you know this straight down the line marxist party we will being recorded.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so your mum was on the left of the of the Labour Party. Yeah. Yeah. And so you grew up thinking about caring about socialist politics. Oh yeah. Yes. As a really crucial part of your formation. Absolutely it was
1: talked about all the time yeah. at home.
0: yes. and we've talked sorry go
1: demonstrations ahead demonstrations from a very young age and
0: We've talked a lot about gender, so where did gender come into your formation as an intellectual, an activist?
1: Well, I think I was a socialist first and then a, and then became a feminist afterwards. Um, yeah, so I kind of came in through that socialist feminist and anarchist feminist tradition. I was very involved in anarchist politics as a young person. Emma Goldman was my
0: big Sure. Yeah. Wow. So,
1: yeah.
0: And now, how does that... We're dealing at the moment with... Obviously, in the last 20 years, a very complicated picture for the extra-parliamentary left as defined broadly. Have you got any thoughts, just about where you think one's commitments might lie now, the issues, the ideological position like what matters to you here and now, away from research and into the broader social?
1: Formation. It's a huge one. It. It's so so big. It's re- I, I find it really difficult to answer, to be yeah. honest. Um, Me too. It's, it's such a tough one, and I, I just feel you know like none of my passion burns any less strongly at all. But I don't know what to do with it, I just don't know what to do with that energy, I don't know what to do with that politics, um, how to make a difference, I mean I'm involved in all kinds of small things that feel really insignificant, you know, trying to stop the library being closed here, you know, trying to kind of get more recycling there, very, very tiny little things, trying to kind of stop my local comprehensive school becoming an academy so it could eradicate, You know the trade unions within the school. All those kinds of they feel fragmented compared with how I was and who I was in my yeah. teens and 20s where I just had a much more kind of programmatic and utopian sense of what was possible. So, I don't know.
0: And the totalizing framework about yeah. socialism and feminism and their intersection, is yes. that fair to say? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so...
0: And for those outside the UK, the the point about comprehensives as opposed to academies is that they're both taking all their money from the state, but one is taking the money to provide a public service and the other in order to make money.
1: Or to um,
0: defang the unions. Yeah,
1: yes. So that they don't get subject to national... You know, pay bargaining, and that they can make local agreements. Basically,
0: the enterprise-based bargaining model that has tried to do away with an industry standard across lots of areas. And uh, we're also dealing with hospital closures. I saw a small march today, actually, against hospital closures. Yes. We have a national health service here in the UK, and. So called rationalization, so called reform means that these things are being cut. But finding a unitary oppositional front in terms of socialism or feminism is tougher than 20 years ago, isn't it? I think that's what you're referring to. Much
1: tougher. Yeah, and you know what, I don't know if it's the same for you, because I'm in my late 40s, um, but it's the way that it gets tied up in your biography as well, and you don't know whether it's just to do with getting old and, um, or whether it actually is to do with kind of some sort of real historical changes, because the two are totally enmeshed and you can't disentangle them.
0: Well, for you as a social psychologist, that's especially poignant, isn't it? I mean, that's the crucible of what you guys do. No? The yeah, entanglement of the yeah. social and the individual, yeah. yes. the political and the psychic.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, older than you, but certainly no wiser. <laughs> well, Ross, I'm hoping that you'll we'll come back to the pod <laughs> soon, but. For sure, maybe with your collaborators on either one of the projects you're currently okay, I think working great. on, yeah, maybe we yes. could have uh, the three of you talking about the book when it comes out or about to come out, yeah. or the three of you, other three, talking yes. about the intellectuals project because the both those issues, the sexualisation issues are people on that, the gender issues mm. and the intellectuals issues are of great moment and great poignancy. So I hope I can extract that <laughs> promise from
1: You wants to get that on tape, don't you? <laughs>
0: tape. <laughs> We're back to your to PhD call it. days. <laughs> Thank you very much for being in the pod.
1: Thanks, Toby.